Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. Today, my guest is Marsha Greenberger, a true pioneer of women's rights law through her work at the National Women's Law Center in Washington, D.C. Marsha and I speak about the early days of women's rights law, the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and the path ahead for advancing women's equality under the law. In the wake of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, Marsha tells us what tools we still have at our disposal to keep up the fight and gives us hope for the future. And now, here's my conversation with Marsha Greenberger. Marsha Greenberger, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I'd love to start, Marsha, with you telling us about how you got started in the area of women's rights. I grew up very much in the 50s notion of homemaker women and men working outside the home. And if women were working outside the home, it was in very limited kinds of careers, teaching and nursing, etc. And that was the way the expectations were when I actually went to college. I graduated in 1967, but I loved college. And I just thought, what a dynamic and intellectual atmosphere, and that it would be wonderful to go to graduate school and get a PhD and be able to teach at that level. My history, I was a history major, and my history advisor was very discouraging. He said it would take six or seven years to get a PhD, and by then I'd be married and have children, and I'd never finished it, and so then I'd end up teaching in a high school level, which I could do without starting a PhD program to begin with. So while he said he would do a recommendation for me, he really wanted me to think carefully about whether that was something that made sense for me. And at that time, I thought he was trying to think through what would be best for me, and this was his advice. I also, in college, had never had a female professor which I only realized, ironically, many, many years later, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the Supreme Court and someone she had taught in law school said she was the first woman professor that this woman had ever had. And then I realized I never did have a woman professor, and I was a history major all the way through college. And in fact, I never had a woman in law school either. But I had two girlfriends that I was in college with, and they came up with the idea of going to law school and talked me into doing it too. And I thought it sounded interesting, and I was open to it. I didn't have very specific career goals at the time. And I will fast forward all the other kinds of barriers that we faced in those early days in being ridiculed, in law school being called on for the rape cases, which was a classic thing that was done to women at the time. There were only about 10 women in my law school class. So these were the days before Ruth Bader Ginsburg got to work. At the same 
time, when it came time to be interviewing for jobs, there were a number of law firms that said straight out that they had never had a woman lawyer and never intended to. And one in particular said to me, well, this was in Washington because I did meet my husband in law school and I loved law school despite all these barriers. It was a wonderful experience and expanded my horizons enormously. So I'm focusing on the kinds of discrimination that was very overt in those days that ultimately shaped my interest in women's rights. And I did end up going to a small firm that was a wonderful experience. I was the first woman associate at the firm. And through it, knowing of some other people who were familiar with this possibility, I learned of an early, one of the first public interest nonprofit organizations called the Center for Law and Social Policy, still doing excellent work today. And the women law students who were working at the center and the women administrative support staff went to the then all-male lawyers at the center and said they wanted and thought the center should hire more women lawyers and they should work on women's rights. And those young guys at the time said, sure, sounds right to me. And so I went and interviewed for that job and got it and started a women's rights project of the Center for Law and Social Policy, which made me the first woman lawyer working full-time on women's rights in Washington, D.C. First woman lawyer? Were there men working on it? The first lawyer. The first lawyer. Working full-time on women's rights in Washington, D.C. And when I started, even though there were people who took on some volunteer cases, but nobody who saw this as their driving professional focus, that there was very little understanding of what I would do and would I have enough to keep me busy full time. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just won her first case in the Supreme Court that for the first time struck down a discriminatory state statute on the basis of sex. So there was some work to begin to focus on under the Constitution. And laws were just beginning to be passed, like Title IX, that prohibited sex discrimination in schools and education. That wasn't passed until 1972. And many of the other laws were just starting. So let's just stop there for a second, because I want to talk about the landscape for women's rights law at that time. So when I started, there wasn't such a thing as sort of women's rights law, per se. but the women's movement was beginning. So by the time I finished and had the benefit of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work being a few years ahead of mine, and members of Congress like Bella Abzug and other strong people who were passing legislation that prohibited sex discrimination in many fields. In 1972, as I said, was Title IX, but 1973 was the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, et cetera. 
that it was a very exciting time to be practicing women's rights and to be in at a time when things were really developing. So you started working on women's rights full time in the early 70s. What were your priorities when you started? Well, I met with a number of people at the time, and one was education as a obviously extremely important area and opening up those opportunities for women. And one of the things that was epitomized going to school in my era, the girls took home ec and the boys took shop, and that was that. And there were just clearly fields that were male and fields that were female, and the lines were clear. So opening up education opportunities was one, and Title IX had just passed, so that was one of the big areas. A second was employment, obviously the ability to earn a living and be employed and be promoted, et cetera, was of critical importance. And in 1964, there was a series with Lyndon Johnson's support of civil rights legislation that passed, primarily focused on race discrimination and a series of titles and one was Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And like many of the other titles, it started out prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race and national origin. And somebody introduced, who was an opponent, sex as an additional grounds of non-discrimination in hopes of making it look ridiculous and defeating the whole thing. But some of the women who were in Congress argued in the House at the time that there was nothing ridiculous about it, and they defended it staying, and in fact, it prevailed and remained. So it's Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits sex discrimination in employment. But it had not been given very much attention when I graduated from law school, the want ads in the newspapers still had columns that said jobs for women and jobs for men. And there were jobs advertised like Gal Friday, and that's what they were called. And so these lines, as I said, were very explicit and very little attention had been paid to getting the sex discrimination prohibitions of Title VII actually enforced and taken seriously. And in 1972, Congress also passed some additional strengthening provisions to Title VII and talked about the problems of sex discrimination in employment. And it was clear it wasn't just a throwaway. So that was an obvious second area of focus. And the third that I picked was health. And I wanted to do that. I was the only lawyer working on women's rights when I was picking these areas, and each of them is enormous, of course. And I wanted a somewhat broader-based program, so education, employment, and I thought there should be a third area. And the Center for Law and Social Policy was working quite a bit on health, and I thought that might be a good area to focus on as well because I could get others of the lawyers at the center who weren't a part of the women's rights work per se, where we could work together on some issues. And that did happen. And I remember a little bit of controversy, ironically, at the time, where some people were saying, well, but 
isn't that just an economic issue? If women have the economic wherewithal, they won't have separate health issues. And we argued, no, there are issues of discrimination and women not included in research studies for drugs, for example, which was a very big issue at the time. And of course, reproductive rights as a form of sex discrimination too. So it became the third area and a very important and vibrant part of the center's work. So we became the National Women's Law Center in 1981, and it has expanded and grown. There's a staff of close to 100. I have stepped down about three years ago now, so I am the emeritus, emerita founder, and I became the co-president of the National Women's Law Center. And its program areas have grown, and the centers worked on tax policy and child care and public benefits law. And it's a very important force for women's law and for good social policy for women. So I'm quite proud of what it's become. So you mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Did you ever have the opportunity to work with her? And did you consider her a mentor? When I started this Women's Rights Project, I called Ruth Bader Ginsburg for some advice about areas to work on, et cetera. And as will come as no surprise, because there have been so many stories of what a kind and gracious person she was, she was very kind to me and gave me advice and guidance too. And I don't know that she would have thought of herself as a personal mentor of mine, but I certainly followed her and worked with her on some legislation and saw the meticulous standards that she maintained and that working in the public interest didn't mean, and for clients who weren't able to pay you, didn't mean that you didn't work as hard and Just because you thought that you had right on your side didn't mean that you would let up on the quality and the rigor of your work. And those were important lessons to learn as well. How else would you describe her legacy? I mean, obviously, we're all very focused on the loss right now and her potential replacement. If you just had to summarize the legacy she left for women, women's rights. It's enormous and still evolving, of course. She established that the Constitution itself has protections for women and men against sex discrimination. And while it's not as high of a standard as that that exists for race discrimination, and that, of course, is an effort that the Equal Rights Amendment is designed to produce, and she was always supportive of an equal rights amendment, that there was protection that could mean that some of these barriers, these overt barriers could be struck down. And I think she wrote some very important decisions that established and and articulated this constitutional standard. And that had enormous practical and has enormous practical impact. 
in addition, she would sometimes write dissents. And she would read the important dissents from the bench. And she was a very savvy person. She was brilliant. She was a brilliant legal mind. She was meticulous in her work, but she understood the context that she was working in. And that if she wrote a dissent and just it quietly sat in the background, it would get very little attention and have limited impact as a result. And the well-known example of a dissent that she read from the bench and the press covered was in the Lily Ledbetter case where Lily Ledbetter was a woman who had been denied equal pay, having a manager's job at Goodyear Tire. She was in Alabama. She was working her fingers to the bone to help support her family with her husband. And she needed that job, and she did it well. And she found out after almost 20 years that everyone who had had a similar job was paid more than she, and they were all male, including younger men who she was training. And the Goodyear Tire had a policy, which was common at the time, that you could be fired if you discussed your salary. So she had no idea over all these years how much less she was being paid than the men. And she took pride in her work. So she was also not only devastated because of the practical implications, but she was hurt as well. And she decided she was going to fight back. And she filed a case under that Title VII for pay discrimination. And she wanted the jury trial. And the jury gave her a multi-million dollar award for all the back pay that she had not been given, but also she had lower social security contributions because her pay was lower. She had lower pension plan contributions. So as she was facing retirement, not only had she not been able to save as much, but all of those retirement plans were reduced as well. So there was a cap under the law for the kinds of damages you could get for sex discrimination, a battle we're still trying to remove those caps that's being fought today. But she did win and she did get the award and Goodyear appealed. And their argument was that under the statute, you have to file a complaint with the government agency within 180 days of the discrimination. And the interpretation of the agency and of the case law all through this period had been that every paycheck is a new act of discrimination. When they appealed, they argued that, oh no, it's not the last paycheck you count from, it's the first paycheck from 19 years ago. And even though she had no idea 19 years ago that she was being paid less. And even though the differential was so much smaller, because of course, often many of the raises were percentage raises over your pay. So the gap kept growing and growing and growing. And so bringing a lawsuit over the small gap would not have been practical. And even though when you start in a new job, the last thing you're going to want to do 
for most people is file a lawsuit within the first six months of your being there and you want to try to work it out and show them what a valuable employee you were. The Supreme Court in a five to four decision held that Goodyear's argument was right and that she had to have filed within six months of that first discriminatory paycheck and not the last discriminatory paycheck. And so if you were able as an employer to make it through the first six months without being sued, you could continue paid discrimination against an employee on the basis of sex indefinitely and be home free. Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the only woman on the bench at that time. Sandra Day O'Connor had stepped down and her replacement, Justice Alito, still on the court, wrote the majority opinion saying, oh, she had to file it within the first six months of her employment where she was forever barred. And we had worked on that case and tried to get the press and public attention to the importance of the case and the issue. And it was very hard because people were hearing 180 days, it's technical, what is this? We were not getting much press. And without public demand and attention, it was going to be very hard to prevail, we believed. In any event, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the dissent for the four dissenters and read it from the bench. So all the Supreme Court press heard it. They wrote about it. And so because it was an interpretation of Title VII, we were able to go back into court, I mean, into Congress, rather, So we could go back into Congress and we could say, you've got to fix this statute to make clear that discrimination in pay gets counted for that 180-day period from the last discriminatory paycheck, not the first. And that became the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And it also became the first law that President Obama signed when he came into office. And it was a very exciting day. I was there for it. And it was named the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. That is such a fantastic story. I never knew exactly how that played out. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you one other footnote, which ties it back even more to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because Lily Ledbetter had said to me how much she would have loved to meet Justice Ginsburg, given the critically important role that the justice played. And so I arranged and went with Lily Ledbetter for her to go and meet Justice Ginsburg in Justice Ginsburg's chambers, because, of course, she agreed to meet Lily Ledbetter. And there were pictures of her with Lily Ledbetter, which Lily Ledbetter has very proudly to this day. And very well, too, that summer, Elena Kagan had just been confirmed to the Supreme Court. And so Justice Ginsburg called her up and said, Justice Kagan, come join us. And so there was a new justice as well as Justice Sotomayor, who wasn't there at the time. So three female justices on the Supreme Court. And that was a very thrilling moment, as you can imagine. I'm getting a little emotional just hearing about it. Let's talk about where we are today. First of all, in terms of your accomplishments and what's been going on 
50 years since you graduated law school, what are you most proud of? What do you feel has been most successful in terms of advancements for women's rights? And then where do we need to go? Well, I'm, of course, extremely proud of the National Women's Law Center. The head is a fantastic woman, Fatima Gosgraves, and where it is under her leadership and the Me Too movement, which has been extraordinarily important to fight issues of sexual harassment. There has been a Time's Up Legal Defense Fund established, and that is a wonderful story in and of itself, funded by many women in Hollywood in particular, but others as well, to help support cases of sexual harassment for women who don't have the means to hire lawyers themselves. And it's housed at the National Women's Law Center. So that's a very wonderful accomplishment. And the center has handled a number of important cases, including sexual harassment cases. And we work quite a bit in our health program on the Affordable Care Act and the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And we coined the phrase, being a woman is not a pre-existing condition, and did a report that had documented all of the kinds of conditions that women had, including past pregnancies that led insurance companies to deny coverage of them in the future or to charge them exorbitant rates to be covered. And we also worked to get other provisions in the Affordable Care Act including requiring maternity coverage to be included, which many insurers had not, or if they did, they would charge extra for it. And needless to say, who would buy a rider to get maternity coverage? People who thought they were going to get pregnant. So it was very expensive and had lots of exclusions. So putting maternity coverage into the bigger pool for everybody to share the risk, the way you share the risk for heart attacks or whatever else you may or may not be likely to get at some point was an important advance. And there are other important things. We did a study at the National Women's Law Center that demonstrated that even with the exclusion of maternity-related conditions, insurers charge women more than men for insurance. And so a 40-year-old woman getting no maternity coverage who'd never smoked, was charged more than a 40-year-old male smoker. And the amount that women were charged more varied widely from state to state. And it was just sort of like a number pulled out of the hat. And so one of the other protections in the Affordable Care Act that we fought hard for was not to charge women more than men. And there are other important, we got a provision that prohibited sex discrimination in healthcare. We'd never had a Title IX for healthcare for women. And seeing that now being jeopardized in the Supreme Court is very, very upsetting, as you can well imagine, because the Affordable Care Act and its particular provisions that are focused on making sure women's health care is covered fairly would have been one of the things I would have listed as something I'm very proud of, and I am, but I'm very worried about what might happen, depending on what happens with the pending nominee to the Supreme Court as a replacement for Justice Ginsburg. What else worries you most about this new Supreme Court? 
Well, I worry about quite a bit. Judge Barrett, she was a law clerk for Justice Scalia, and she said that she views herself as in the mold of Justice Scalia. And while they were great friends, Justice Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were often on opposite sides. So one of the cases that was the great accomplishment of Justice Ginsburg's was this Virginia Military Institute case where she articulated a very strong standard under the Constitution to protect women against government-based discrimination. In this case, the Virginia Military Institute excluding women. It was Virginia-run, excluded women from going on the grounds. Well, their view was their tradition of the way that they trained their cadets was too hard, and we participated in that case. And there were expert witnesses that the state of Virginia at the time put on the stand that talked about women were too emotional, they'd break down crying, they couldn't take it, they couldn't be there, would ruin VMI forever. And of course, because of her decision, and it was the Virginia Military Institute had to accept women, and there have been women who've been a great success going through VMI, and it's been a route to business power, and political power in the state of Virginia, and now women have access to that as well. Well, there was only one dissent in that case. Justice Thomas did not participate. His son was a student at VMI at the time, and the only dissent was Justice Scalia's. And that, to me, epitomizes the difference in approach, including in this landmark, extraordinary decision of Justice Ginsburg's where he dissented. And what he said in his dissent was that he thought the standard in the Constitution should be what's called the old rational basis standard where women always lost and any sex discrimination challenge never prevailed. And he said it should never have gotten the heightened protection that was, of course, the great hallmark of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's accomplishments. And I worry about that. I worry about the fact that she's written that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional and it was upheld, its constitutionality, by one vote, Justice Roberts, and she excoriated his reasoning for why he upheld it. And now she could be the swing vote with the Affordable Care Act being declared unconstitutional as a result. And I worry, of course, about the hostility that she's expressed publicly to Roe v. Wade and the very strong language that she's used about the fact that she's seen it as unconstitutional and she's signed on to a public advertisement saying it should be overturned and that it was a terrible tragedy and travesty of the law. And so, again, given the changes and President Trump's commitment that he wouldn't pick somebody who he didn't think would overturn Roe v. Wade, that also is something that I think is very much in danger. And I worry very much about 
what would happen if she were confirmed and became the swing vote in a lot of these cases. So, I mean, your work and the work of your peers paved the way for women of my generation and certainly for our daughters. Those days seem like ancient history and settled. What would you say to those of us who've become complacent and assume that rights can't be taken away? Well, I think that the lessons of history show that rights can be taken away if people don't fight for them and aren't vigilant. And I worry very much that seat by seat, step by step, as vacancies came up, when presidents who wanted were hostile to Roe v. Wade, for example, said that they were going to put somebody on the Supreme Court who would support overturning Roe v. Wade, there may still have been five votes to sustain it, although it's gotten weaker and weaker and weaker in its protections. And so for women of limited means and young women, as a practical matter, having access to abortion care and services in many parts of the country can be not a real thing today. And I worry that sometimes, as is, I hope, the case with Amy Coney Barrett, people will see she really could be the deciding vote and that that could mobilize a real fight, but that people have to be vigilant because there were those fights before where there was that kind of complacency. So I think women have to take seriously their, that life as they assumed it to be can't be assumed going into the future. And unfortunately, I think what COVID showed was disparities on the basis of race and income were exacerbated. And over the last year, I want to end on a higher note than this. We will, don't worry. (laughs) But over the last year, 80% of the people who dropped out of the labor market are women. And the pressures on women of having lower income paid jobs the inability of many to be able to work remotely, the lack of childcare, the closing of schools has made it impossible for women to stay in the labor force at many levels and with the greatest, of course, impact at the lower income levels. But this derailing of women and a devastation to childcare services, and that is an area of focus of the National Women's Law Center now as well, where, of course, most child care providers are women, and the pay and benefits have been dreadful, and we don't have a decent supported child care system in this country, and women whose wages are lower to begin with as well, so they can't afford child care, let alone good quality child care, let alone the ability to take care of their children under these circumstances, that if they drop out of the labor market, it's very difficult. And there have been studies that have shown under the best of circumstances for women to come back in. And those kinds of interruptions have lifelong implications for their earnings and for their retirement savings stresses. In the Ledbetter case, 
her lack of equal pay had the same kind of lifelong implications. So we still have a lot of work to do. And it seems like it's always feels like, yes, we make these advancements, but then the next set of issues crop up. There's always something. But assuming the Supreme Court is going to be an issue for women for a while, I'm just going to make that assumption. Maybe I'm wrong, and that would be great. But what's a workaround? In which of these areas can women's rights still be protected under, for instance, state law? I want to say a couple things. Women's political power has never been stronger, and women speaking up has never been louder with women's marches, and women's voting and participation has never been more noticed. And candidates are pitching to women. So I think women making their voices known and clear, both in voting and in speaking out and in connecting with their legislators is very, very important. And when it comes time to overturn precedents, one of the legal principles is how well settled the law is and what kind of disruption it would cause. That's an official consideration. And women need to make clear that their ability to control their reproductive futures is central and integral to their ability to be equal citizens in this country. And state law and state constitutions are important. There is room, as candidate Biden said, for a federal statute that could provide the protections that Roe did if there is a president supporting it and a Congress willing to pass it. There is room for state laws as well, and many judges in states run for office. And often people do not even pay attention to the judicial candidates and know anything about them. And so in this voting season, it's very important to look at who those elected judges are. So these are all ultimately things that can make a difference. And voting and making sure that the people that you vote for at every level support women's rights, strong interpretations and enforcement of the laws are critically important. And as was constitutional protections that are lost by the Supreme Court, sometimes can take a while to get back, whether it's through a constitutional amendment, which is a very difficult process, as we well know from the Equal Rights Amendment, or a change on the court. But those who opposed Roe v. Wade did not give up and worked and worked and worked to get more and more and more justices until they could get a five-person majority to overturn it. And there's great fear, of course, that if Amy Barrett is confirmed, that she would be that fifth justice. But we can work and work and work through legislation, through state courts, through state constitutions, and through federal law and federal statutes. And I will say, if you don't have government enforcement of the law, it doesn't make anywhere near the difference in the impact. And we have seen cutbacks on equal pay data being collected by the agency, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission under this administration. 
We've seen sexual harassment protections in schools in Title IX being cut back by, from, by Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education, et cetera. And we need better regulations and we need stronger enforcement of the laws when we get them to. And so this may be a wake-up call, let's hope. And we've seen women of every age, whether it was that huge march with pink hats all around the world, or women speaking out in many other ways that people are sitting up and taking notice. Well, thank you. I think that's a perfect place to end. Bottom line, vote, pay attention, speak up. Yeah, we need to do all of the above and keep fighting. So Marsha Greenberger, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all the work you've done in your career to give us the opportunities we have today. And I hope that we will all continue it together. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your interest and your questions and your willingness to fight. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.